Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Friday, June the 17th, end of the week, and we're going to be talking once again about children and adults. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I did a really good show, I thought. It's nothing to do with me, it's the guest. Julie Lifecott-Haynes, how to, how to successfully grow up and become an adult, a particularly important, I think, subject in our age of perpetual childhood. Uh, Julie's new book is called Your Turn, How to Be an Adult. And she's also very well known for how to raise an adult. It's an important issue, how to go from childhood to adulthood. We do lots of shows about how parents are supposed to treat their children. We did one with Scott Hershowitz, a philosopher on teaching children to become philosophers, although I'm not sure uh, whether his book helped. His book is called Nasty British and Sure, whether it explains how to make children into adults. We're also obsessed with being parents. Dana Susskind, a University of Chicago writer, um, wants us to imagine America as a parent nation. She has a book out called Parent Nation. Maybe we should have a book on uh, child nation. Certainly America's children um, have an increasingly central voice. Uh, the issue of metrics and parents and children are really interesting too. Emily Oster was on the show, another distinguished business writer. She has a book out called The Family Firm, a data-driven guide to better decision-making in the early school years. I'm not sure if you can quantify being a child or being a parent. And of course, there are all the reactions to this. Lots of people have been warning us over the years in America about overparenting. Matt Feeney was on the show uh, talking about his book about overparenting. But it still leaves us this, with this whole issue of um, what it means to be an adult, what it means to be a child, and indeed, who is an adult and who is a child. My guest today is uh, one of my favorite Financial Times columnists. She's the writer on career and work, uh, Emily, uh, not Emily, uh, <laughs> Emma Jacobs. Uh, everyone's Emily in England except Emma. Emma Jacobs, which is a really interesting op-ed uh, in the Financial Times, one of her columns this week. The metrics for attaining adulthood are ever-shifting, and uh, Emma is joining us from Islington in North London. Emma. Hi. Uh, this idea of metrics for determining adulthood, you write about whether or not we can determine those metrics. Is it traditionally, it's always, you're supposed to be an adult when you're 18, that's when you can drink, at least in the United States. Uh, when you can go to war, get married, although sometimes the age is 16. What did you discover? Or what are the issues in this metrics for attaining adulthood? I mean, the reason that I wrote it last week was because uh, we had a report uh, commissioned by the government about smoking ages. And uh, about nearly 15 years ago, we lifted the, rate, the age for smoking from 16 to 18. And now uh, they were proposing initially... The thought was that they were going to move it to 21, but now the proposal is to keep moving it every year 
until I guess they phase it out entirely so that uh, it's illegal to smoke, but the um, or illegal to buy cigarettes. So the uh, so the idea was this sort of you know that our notion of adulthood is maybe shifting and that uh, you know that we'd kind of agreed that 18 was an age that you could do things and now it was moving again possibly 19 20 21 but I mean in a way it sort of spoke to the kind of fears that you've raised with some of the other writers about you know childhood there's a lot of anxiety about kind of infantilization and I think during COVID there was a huge amount of anxiety but that we were all being infantilized by rules and regulations uh, and so and that you know the discussions of safetyism and this kind of extended idea of um, childhood that is is delaying adulthood so it was really a look at that and sort of thinking back to how I felt I mean some of it was you know you can't help but extrapolate from your own experience and and when I, I remember when I was 18 my father said to me that he often didn't feel like an adult and I thought then I thought that was ridiculous uh you know he was divorced <laughs> he'd already been married he'd had two children a career you know he was over 50 which was ancient and uh and you know house and all the other signs of adulthood, like a car, and uh, and I just I just remember thinking it was the most stupid thing I'd ever heard. But of course, then you become an adult, and these things seem sort of like a movable feast to you too. I remember when I had my own son, I just I was sitting some a friend of mine had taken my son and was holding him, and then suddenly he started to cry and should that look of panic that friends have when they're holding your child, and she said, "Oh, I think he needs his mum," and I just went. For a minute, I just thought, oh, where is his mum? And then I realised that it was me. It's that kind of sudden realisation of responsibility. And actually, one reader kind of wrote back and said uh, that it struck, they said, I'm just reading it now, it struck me that adulthood comes upon us when we face some daunting task, bearing a parent, taking care of another person, buying a house. And the thought crosses our mind, I have no idea how to do this right, but there's no one else who can do this, so I better get on with it. So although there are metrics, there are legal rules uh, that say that you can do things at, at generally 18, there are also kind of feelings about whether you feel responsible enough to, to do it. I mean, do, do, have you, do you feel like an adult, Andrew? Definitely not. I don't behave <laughs> one like either. Uh, but I'm, well, everyone thinks so unusual. Let's go back to the, the issue of you and your father and uh, we're not entirely different uh, age group, Emma. It seemed like, certainly with my parents, that there was a very, very clear difference between adults and children. We thought differently. We dressed differently. We did different things. We had different values. We saw each other differently. But it seems to me as if, both in, in my broader observations and as a father now, that there doesn't seem to be that much of a difference between being a child and being an adult. And if anything, the things have reversed. So we seem to believe that children somehow have more wisdom than adults. Uh, the book I was come back to in this conversation is Richard Powers' Bewilderment. I'm not sure if you've read it. It's a really interesting book. He's a brilliant writer. He's probably certainly one of America's best novelists. And it's a book about the environment and how this fictional child who's autistic in this book sees things more clearly and more truthfully than everyone around him. And it, to me, that speaks of the way in which 
um, childhood in our culture and children have been so mythologized and fetishized. Whereas perhaps in our generation, um, it was the reverse. You know, the, it was the old saying. I mean, my parents used to say half jokingly, children should be seen and not heard. No one would ever say that now. No. I mean, I think there's this, there's the, uh, there's sort of data showing that, you know, as women enter the workforce, they actually end up spending more time with their children. Parents spend more time with their children than when one of them was at home full time. And so the idea, I guess, you know, that other writers have talked about of kind of, you know, the intensive parenting and the kind of one, you know, the kind of uh, there's a piece in the FT about gentle parenting, which is the idea that you kind of have to, you know, take not take your child, a very young children quite seriously and kind of mirror their emotions and kind of validate them all the time. You know, those sort of things would have been, as you say, kind of mad to our parents uh, who had a much more kind of uh, hands-off approach to parenting. And, and you know, and it's a constant conversation I have with my partner about how you, how much free, you know, free reign the kids have and how much they're allowed to do compared to us when we were growing up and how much kind of latitude they have. To well, what's do your sense on this whole over-parenting thing? Uh, Matt Feeney, as I said, was on the show last year talking about it, something that comes up perpetually, um, that middle and upper class Americans, the English people, Europeans, they've changed. They're obsessed with their children, whereas their parents weren't. They just let their kids basically do whatever they like. Maybe they were more selfish. Maybe they were more self-centered. But there's something weird has happened that, that, that our generation of professional parents increasingly live through their children and define themselves according to the achievements of their children, are obsessed with which colleges they go to and which careers they have. My parents never even knew which college I went to. <laughs> the, but I mean, yes, yeah, I completely agree. And, uh, and I think that... Um... But I don't, I I mean, you know, there's the idea that, you know, we're having kids later and then so we've got kind of, you know, we've achieved certain things like our careers and then we're kind of the next thing we're achieving is our children and and uh, and that we've got fewer children, so we're spending more time on them. Uh, but I mean, in, I mean, I don't, I, I kind of, I kind of sway with the wind on this. I kind of, I think they are different to when we were growing up. Uh, but I don't necessarily think that's, a bad thing. I mean, you know. No, I'm not saying it is. I, I'm not convinced it's altogether a bad thing. I mean, as always in these things, maybe there's a degree of compromise somewhere between the two. I mean, and so to some degree, I kind of think it's a kind of media uh, fascination. And I kind of, I don't, I don't meet, you know, I, I don't send my child to private school, but I don't meet many people who are really intensively parenting their kids. I mean... Even in Islington, I would have thought that would have been the heart of the over-parenting culture in the world. Maybe I'm just blind to it because I'm so immersed in it. But I think the... uh, But, uh, yeah, I mean, for... um, Yeah, I'm in the heart of metropolitan London, which is kind of the, you know, the sort of liberal... The liberal agenda, as we're uh, we're characterised, sort of media lovies and so on. But the I don't I don't find it I I don't find it as kind of crazy as some of the articles I read would portray it to be. I have obviously I've met 
people I met, I remember meeting a editorial, uh, editorial, educational consultant who had started off, her, her kind of job was, she was based in West London, which is kind of full of uh, European bankers, or was until Brexit, and it works like now, but the Russian bankers, maybe. The uh, And it was, and she had started off sort of advising uh, new arrivals who didn't know the education system and to help them navigate it. But what she found was the, the kind of arms race to get children into good schools became earlier and earlier. So she was basically advising people with babies on which nursery to get into so that that would put them on a firm footing for the next place to go to. And so so it was kind of, you know, I remember her saying to me that she, the banker, the father, had not only decided which college he wanted his son to go to in I think it was Oxford or Cambridge but also which bank he wanted this child to work for and and so you know there are obviously there are sort of great examples that I'm happy to write about in stories but I don't I don't know how widespread that kind of culture is I think that it's much more there is a much more self-conscious parenting uh, than there was for our parents, you know, the I, I, you know, I remember reading something about somebody who'd had triplets in the sixties, and uh, somebody of my age had said, "Well, how did you get them to nap?" And she was just like, "Well, I put them in the bedroom, close the door, and then I come back an hour later." You know, the idea that you'd be kind of rocking them and hushing them and kind of attachment, you know. But I also think, I guess, I think that this sort of intensive parenting is a kind of thing to kind of bash women over the head I think that men get a much freer pass on this and I think it's a kind of you know women who are working are kind of feeling guilty about it so they're kind of reading up more and trying to kind of be hands-on parents but also you know then they get criticized for being hands-on parents so I kind of I kind of think that some of this is a bit sexist your your piece talks about the transition to al- adulthood today being vexatious. Um, mm. I mean, it's always been vexatious, I guess, uh, although I'm not sure if there always was. A tra- and historians suggest that maybe at some point the idea of childhood was invented. Is it particularly vexatious uh, in the workplace, uh, Emma? Um, there's been, and, and you write about this a lot, a lot of articles about young people in the workplace, what they're demanding, what they're looking for, why they're quitting. I mean, given how quickly the economy's changed, I'm not sure if they're going to have the luxury of being able to quit in the future. But for the moment, the idea is that young adults or people going from college to uh, jobs, that they want something from work which other generations haven't wanted. And perhaps that's part of becoming an adult. I think that uh, there's a lot of discussion about millennials who are, who are obviously quite old now. A lot of them have kids uh, and are sort of 40. Um, and Gen Z, who are younger, entering the workplace, uh, being, you know, wanting more fulfilment, wanting more purpose, wanting more feedback wanting better work-life balance and uh, that they're quite needy in contrast to us. I mean, I think, you know, the Generation X kind of, you know, we were latchkey kids, uh, you know, and in the workplace, we're a lot, um, we're a lot, uh, you know, that there's a kind of characterization of this sort of younger workforce that are kind of very needy. 
And so I, I just, I kind of think that there's a lot of exaggeration when it comes to this. I think that there's, there's something when we talk about generations, sometimes it's a bit like star signs. I mean, of course there are shifts, but you know, I also like purpose and fulfillment out of my career. I bet you do too. I bet you too like work-life balance. I mean, I think there is a shift in that we are kind of much more conscious of kind of mental well-being from an early age. Uh, when I talked to my son, who's now 10, I talked to him a couple of years ago and I was trying, I remember we were talking about something about uh, somebody having anxiety and I started saying, spelling it out to him as if he, as if he was an idiot, as it turned out, because they'd already learned about these things at school. We never learned about mental well-being at school but they're much more fluent in it. They're much more fluent in the idea of kind of, uh, you know, being able to express themselves in a way that we weren't, as you say, we were told to shut up. And in a way that kind of, that kind of extended into the workplace, you know, we kind of shouldered on and uh, soldiered on even and, and kind of got on with the work and worked long hours. And, and I think that actually, you know, the shifts are more about technology or the economy or the precarity of the workforce rather than they're so needy. I mean, I think there's, you know, actually young people quite like stable jobs too. I mean, surprise, surprise, they also want money, you know, where they're moving around a lot, it tends to be they're in, in, they're in unstable industries. So I think that there's, there's kind of a lot of stereotypes about the gender shifts um and you know if you're thinking oh we need to give feedback to this 25 year old well think that maybe you should be giving it to this 55 year old too they also need feedback and encouragement too but uh i think that during covid there's been a lot of changes uh you know obviously with education and then entering the workforce i spoke to a graduate last year or rather a colleague spoke to a graduate last year who was doing a placement at a consumer goods company and they ended up doing a kind of taste experiment not in the lab at work but in their kitchen so there were lots of changes in their kind of introduction to work that have kind of that have been difficult and uh you know and i've got a piece coming out this uh after the weekend about this about graduates who have left university having done uh, having been through the pandemic and now you know it's a jolt entering the workforce you know it's it's quite a big deal actually knowing how to get into a building and using the vending machine if they if they have them you know so i think that there's a lot of things that people are adjusting to what are we looking for emma in work i i'm not sure if you're familiar with the uc berkeley sociologist um Carolyn Chen, I had her on the show a few months ago, and I often refer back to her work, Work, Pray, Code, When Work Becomes Religion in Silicon Valley. It's not just a book, though, about Silicon Valley. It's about banks on the East Coast, too, suggesting that for one reason or other, particularly what I think she identifies as a kind of spiritual vacuum, perhaps in America, people are looking for meaning in work, that what, what, what was once church now has become the office. You can certainly see this in some of the dystopian novels by people like Dave Eggers about big tech companies that are trying to become everything. Um, and, and ultimately, I guess they become nothing. Uh, do you think people are looking for work and particularly younger people coming into the workforce? Seems to me, again, just anecdotally from my experience with my kids that 
work is taken more seriously by this younger generation than it was by ours. They work harder, they take it more seriously, but they're also more easily disappointed, perhaps more brittle. Well, perhaps that you know, perhaps they've got a better handle on it, and the kind of you know uh, are more likely to find fault in something. I mean, I, I do think that there is a kind of there is a kind of you know that work you know people call it workism, where it takes on the kind of religious uh, place that you know that that would the hole that would have been filled by religion, and it has a meaning. And also, you know, that maybe people who are having relationships later are filling that void with work. And and I, I do think that it is, you know, it is exalted in some ways. But, in, you know, it sometimes seems to me that the more, uh, you know, the more love you're meant to give to work, it's because some of those kind of, some of those other factors like, you know, pensions or stable stable hours or so on that they're missing and this kind of you know this sort of spirituality that comes from work is filling that kind of you know is making up for the shortcomings in in yeah work uh, one of my guests had a book work won't love you back suggesting that you're going to find love somewhere else certainly not in the workplace well I think I mean it's a good it's a really good book and I think that she's right (laughs) I mean, it's going to be very disappointing if you think the work is going to love you back. Uh, Emma, we we first met, you interviewed me for a piece, I think it was on the gig economy back in 2017. Uh, You wrote an excellent piece, The Gig Economy, Freedom from a Boss or Just a Con. It remains under a lot of pressure, the gig economy, particularly perhaps in today's inflationary world. Um, Is there such a thing as a precariat? Or is this another invention of Islington journalists? <laughs> I, th- well, I think there's a lot of, I think that it's it's not the kind of, it, it's not the state of jobs. But I think that there is a lot, you know, that my job is pretty stable, even in the media industry. But I think that's a rarity in this industry. I don't think that there's, you know, I don't, there's a lot of industries that are pretty stable. Uh, you know, you can go and work for one of the big four. I know that they're having a difficult time, but you can still do jobs like that that are reasonably stable and you get a graduate job out of university. There are many more platforms that will give you precarious uh, contracts. But I think that... Uh, I think that there is a kind of, I guess my kind of worry is that the flexibility that's coming out of this new workplace, uh, you know, that might come out of kind of the office might not go in the workers, you know, way that we kind of, we've just come out of two years for white collar workers where we think that, you know, that we've got the power again. And for a bit, it seems that we have, but as cost of living crisis happened, I don't know what's going to happen next. I mean, what do you think? I mean, I mean, there's many more platforms to provide precarious employment. I guess is the biggest shift, and there are zero hours contracts in the, in in the UK, and there is unstable 
employment in Europe. I don't know what I don't. Well, know I think the, the muddying of the difference between full time work and precariat work is also a, a piece of this muddying of the difference between being a child and being an adult. All, all these things which seem so solid in the 20th century now have, have come into to question. Um, let's end with talking a little bit more about growing up. I mean, what's your advice? You're a parent. <laughs> what advice would you give both to parents and children about these the, the, the metric for attaining adulthood? How, how is the best way to get from being a child to being an adult, as, 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 as Julie uh, Lithcott-Haynes writes about, how do we, how, how, what's the best way to raise an adult and what's the best way to become one? Easy questions, Emma. Yeah, they're fantastic questions. I want to know the answers. I don't, I don't know. I think that, uh, I think it's just stepping up to the, I think for an adult, it's about stepping up to the challenge and just, uh, not making a perfect job of it. I mean, just... Excusing the pun of making a perfect job, right? <laughs> it's just getting on with it, to be honest. I really... That's I a very English answer of just getting on I with it. I really can't think of any other... I mean, I think the reader comment that you just realise that you're the only one that can do it is is right. And, you know, and when a parent dies or you buy a property or you get a job or something, you realise that you're just in a new world where you just have to get on with it and no one's going to show you what to do. I think raising a child, I mean, as the, speaking as the perfect parent, I'm going to say, I mean, you're, really you're, this you're an ice cream, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah, you must be a pretty good parent. I think, you know, somebody said to me once that the, I think is just, is enjoying being a parent and enjoying being a child without, enjoying your child without thinking that every day is going to be bloody brilliant because it really isn't. I mean, probably the best way to be both a child and certainly a parent is not to read books or listen to conversations <laughs> about being a parent or a child. I think that's one of the problems. Do you know what the answer is? I wish I did. But I, w what I do know is that being a parent is much harder than uh, running a talk show. <laughs> I think it's the hardest thing of all. I'm sure. Is being a parent for you harder than being a Financial Times writer? Uh yeah but also i think i i have my son quite late and so sometimes i i do talk to women that are uh you know prevaricating about ha having children and i do think it is you know i've had quite i've had quite a nice job and i've met lots of interesting people uh but i think having a child is the most enjoyable experience yeah good so i hope you tell them to have kids because that's the other thing um is again, and some of this is anecdotal, but more and more of my friends tell me, oh, my kids don't want to have kids because of the environment, because they feel that our generation has fucked up, which to me is absurd, because the only way you're going to fix these things is by having children. <laughs> I mean, maybe, maybe not six or seven, but certainly <laughs> one or two. It's everyone's choice. <laughs> well, it's everyone's it? choice. Uh, Emma Jacobs, um, Again, congratulations. Your 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 column, uh, the metrics for attaining adulthood are ever shifting. Fascinating, uh, classic Jacobs. Congratulations on all your excellent <laughs> columns. What else are you reading, Emma, these days? Anything interesting? Uh, yeah, well, I would just. Books? I read a. Uh, I just read and reviewed um, Ghost Lover by uh, Lisa Tadeo, who did the. Oh, I saw women. that in the in in the FT. Is it good? 
Uh, I did not enjoy it. It was a collection of short stories that I just thought was uh, some of the writing. It was some of the writing was. It, I mean, actually, it, taught, it it's a very good book to read after thinking about adulthood because there was a lot of negative ennui <laughs> being expressed at the tedium of life. And and a lot of terrible sex descriptions, which I thought was uh, yeah, well, we'll interesting. We'll have to get Lisa on the show to to read out some of the terrible sex. <laughs> and the other one that I started reading was Emily Nussbaum, uh, which is an old book on watching TV. 